Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is called Credo and the Credit Crisis. It's a guest essay by Adam Hamilton. Adam Hamilton is the author of Seeing Gray in a World of Black and White, and then a new book forthcoming, Simplicity, Generosity, and Joy. Adam Hamilton is the senior pastor at the United Methodist Church of the Resurrection in Leewood, Kansas. For Sunday, October 19th, 2008. Credo in the Credit Crisis. Fear, panic, anxiety. These capture well the state of mind of many in America today. Recently, the American Psychological Association released the findings of a survey they conducted of 7,000 American households. The study noted that 80% of Americans were stressed about the economy and their personal finances. Half were worried about their ability for their family's basic needs to provide them. 56% were concerned about their own job stability. 60% of respondents reported feeling angry and irritable, and 52% reported laying awake at night worried about all this. The report concluded that, quote, the declining state of the nation's economy is taking a physical and emotional toll on people nationwide, end quote. Meanwhile, Paul Krugman Professor of Economics at Princeton University offered a prescient assessment of the nation's economic condition earlier this year. He noted that the U.S. economy is suffering from what he called a crisis of faith. By this he meant a growing lack of trust in our economic institutions and the securities that have backed much of our debt. At the center of this crisis is the use of and problems surrounding the extension of credit. It's worth noting that the word credit is a word that is a part of the language of faith. It comes from the Latin credir, to believe or to trust. The present active form of this word opens the Apostles' Creed, as when we say, I believe, credo. In the case of credit, belief or trust is placed in the borrower in her or his willingness and ability to repay. Our current economic crisis is in part about misplaced trust or faith between debtors and lenders. So far, neither a $700 billion bailout package, nor a Fed rate cut, nor presidential calls for calm have stemmed the tide of fear, nor do they seem to adequately speak to the underlying issues that precipitated this crisis of faith. This is a moment when the Bible and people of faith have both a timely word that can calm fears and the most accurate assessment of the underlying issues that led to the current economic debacle. The word of hope is found in the words spoken to people in adversity and even exile throughout the Bible. There are the words of the prophets spoken to the Israelites living in exile after losing everything. To those exiles, God spoke profound words of promise. We read in Isaiah 41.10, Do not fear, for I am with you. 
Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my right hand. The psalmist, too, during periods of adversity, wrote words like Psalm 46, 1 and 2. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Jesus speaks directly to our situation in the Sermon on the Mount. As he said to first century peasants, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink. But strive first to enter the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given you as well. Matthew 6, 25 and 33. As we watch the Dow drop over 1,800 points in one week, in the waves of fear and the winds of panic sweeping over our collective souls, it's easy to identify with the disciples straining at their oars, being battered by the wind and waves in the fourth watch of the night as they wondered where Jesus was when they really needed him. What comfort we find in his words of greeting as he came walking on water towards them, unshaken by the storm. Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Matthew fourteen twenty seven. And now, skip ahead a few chapters in the New Testament, and we come to Paul sitting in his prison cell, writing his epistle to the Philippians. He's awaiting the outcome of a trial that could see him executed, and yet he has the faith to write in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And how timeless are those words written to Timothy, instructions for what he was to be preaching to the people of Ephesus. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. 1 Timothy 6.17 The credit crisis serves to point to the inadequacy of any ultimate credo whose object is anything but God. God, we read in the Psalms, is our refuge and strength. And God's sustaining power is not tied to the Tao. It's crucial that we invite people to put their hope in God and offer them the assurance that comes from faith in Him. The Bible's chronicle wrote Israel and Judah's history, both to offer hope for a future for the people whose nation had been destroyed, but also to point out Judah's sins so that she might repent. In the same way, the Christian must not only offer hope, but also an accurate assessment of the ultimate causes for this present crisis, issuing a call to repentance. The underlying causes, then, of the current economic crisis are not financial, but spiritual. At least five of the seven deadly sins come into play. Gluttony, greed, sloth, envy, and ultimately pride all came before the financial fall. These led to absurd economic practices that bordered on the criminal. 
It was not simply the CEOs and the Wall Street types who danced to this tune. It was every one of us whose 401ks prospered by their efforts. And ultimately, none of this would be possible without all who abandoned wisdom and prudence and borrowed beyond their capacity to buy houses, cars, and whatever their hearts desired without the ability to repay. As we see the consequences of the current economic downturn, and as we reflect upon the spiritual causes that led to the fall, we find comfort in truth in the words of Jesus. One's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Luke 12:15. Thank God for that. And may the truth of these words guide us to a different future. The gospel message today, most needed, is a call to hope in a God who will not abandon us, and a call to repentance before a God who forgives and heals us. Ultimately, it's an invitation to credo in the midst of a credit crisis. Adam Hamilton, pastor of the United Methodist Church of the Resurrection in Leewood, Kansas. For books this week, I review Jennifer Finney Boylan. The title, She's Not There, A Life in Two Genders. New York Broadway Books, 2003, 307 pages. From his earliest memories as a three-year-old, James Finney was never without the awareness that he was, quote, in the wrong body, living the wrong life, end quote. As a youngster, a teenager, a college student, a husband deeply in love with his wife and two children, and a professor of English at Colby College in Maine, Boylan countered that unsettling consciousness for several long decades with what he called, quote, an exasperated companion thought, namely, don't be an idiot, you're not a girl, get over it, end quote. This deeply human memoir tells how James never got over it, and how, at the age of 43, he finally had sex reassignment surgery that completed his transgendering to Jennifer. Boylan says that her journey caused her an almost inexpressible degree of private grief. She discovered that gender identity was far more complex than sexual attraction, cultural expectations, cross-dressing, extended therapy, biology, or even genetics. It was not a choice for a certain lifestyle. She tried mightily, quote, to accept who I wasn't, end quote, knowing that transgendering from male to female would mean only loss and grief for many people. In that Herculean but ultimately futile quest, she was aided by having inherited her mother's boundless optimism. She counted her blessings, and especially what she calls the greatest years of her life in marriage to Carol and their two children. James knew full well that finally transitioning to female would cause his beloved Carol untold grief, loss, and a sense of betrayal. 
and that he would bear his own grief and guilt as a result. In the end, Boylan describes her trans transgendering from James to Jennifer as more like a quote-unquote erosion or forced conscription, end quote, than a decision. This is a powerful story because of its transparency. Most people supported her, but her sister has never spoken to her since she transitioned. As you would expect, her memoir is partly a plea for understanding, but even that is not compromised by polemical or partisan zeal. James transgendered to Jennifer, quote, because I can't not, end quote. After all the explanations and anguish, she concludes, what I have come to realize is that no matter how much light one attempts to throw on this condition, it remains a mystery. At the end of the book, she offers 13 questions for discussion and eight books for further reading. Her sequel memoir, called I'm Looking Through You, was published in 2008. Jennifer Finney Boylan, She's Not There, A Life in Two Genders. For film this week, I review a film from Iran, the title of is called Daybreak, from the year 2006. Mansoor murdered his boss. That much is clear. And for his crime, he sits on death row in Tehran's Gasser prison, awaiting execution. What is not clear is why the family of the victim has remained absent on three execution dates. Is this mere coincidence? A form of deliberate torture? An act of forgiveness? In Islamic law, the family of the victim must attend the execution of the convicted, and in their hands rests both retribution and pardon. Mansoor's father begs for mercy. His pregnant wife gives birth while he's in prison. His fellow prisoners are car carted to their own executions while inmates make bets on the outcome. Mansoor is haunted by memory, nightmares, and, most of all, the tedium of waiting for his fourth execution date. That's 40 long days, the period of mourning the victim's family must observe for a death in their own family. This film was an official selection at the Tribeca and Toronto festivals. In Farsi, with English subtitles. Daybreak. And finally, with our national elections coming, we've posted a poem by Sheslav Milos, who lived from 1911 to 2004 and won the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1980. The title of the poem is A Nation. The purest of nations on earth when it's judged by a flash of lightning, but thoughtless and sly in everyday toil, pitiless to its widows and orphans, pitiless to its old people, stealing a crust of bread from a child's hand, ready to offer their lives to draw heaven's wrath on their foes, 
smiting their enemy with the screams of orphans and women. Entrusting power to men with the eyes of traitors in gold. Elevating men with the conscience of brothel keepers. The best of its sons remain unknown. They appear once only to die on the barricades. Bitter tears of that people cut a song off in the middle. And when the song dies away, noisy voices tell jokes. A shadow stands in a corner, pointing to his heart. Outside, a dog howls to the invisible planet. Great nation, invincible nation, ironic nation. They know how to distinguish truth and yet to keep silent. They camp on marketplaces, conversing in wisecracks. They deal in old door handles stolen from ruins. A nation in crumpled caps, carrying all they own. They go west and south, searching for a place to live. It has no cities, no monuments, no painting or sculpture. Only the word passed from mouth to mouth in prophecy of poets. A man of that nation, standing by his son's cradle, repeats words of hope, always, till now, in vain. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, October the 19th, 2008. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.